This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. Uh, with me in the studio this week is Carolyn Pettit. Um, no, I think I said it wrong this time. No, that I think was I said exactly it right, right this time. Carolyn I should never. Pettit, you nailed it. This is like when you uh, answer something on a test and then you immediately second guess yourself, but you were right the first time. Yeah. It's devastating. Uh, she is a San Francisco based game critic and the managing editor at Feminist Frequency. She is a co host on the podcast Feminist Frequency Radio alongside Anita Sarkis. Keesian, uh, and Ebony Aster. Carolyn has also worked with Anita on projects like Tropes versus Women in Video Games. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for being here and for reassuring me about uh, pronunciations and also for just uh, yeah. being available. How's it going? How are Tropes? How are Women? How are Video uh, Games? Uh, better, you know, better. But but I think that the mindset that Anita and I typically have about those things is, is like, hey, look, we can definitely recognize that conversations are happening now that weren't happening five years ago. Games are being made, by and large, with some better representations than they were five years ago. But but also, like, there's something tempting about getting into that, like, um, yay, we did it. We can all rest on our laurels now. It's done mentality. And, of course, the reality is that we're still far from that and there's still so much work to be done. Yeah, I mean, if this column and podcast have taught me anything, it's that every time I think we're done having a particular conversation, we are not done. We are not even a little bit done. Yeah, a whole new crop of people need to have that conversation right now. Exactly. Yes. Um, yes. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Would you please read our first letter? I would. Um, all right. Uh, subject: Move in. Dear Prudence, my boyfriend is a wonderful, generous, supportive man. He lost his fiancée several years ago in a car accident. As we've gotten closer, he's gotten more anxious about a similar accident happening to me, and he's been asking me to move in. I haven't been quite ready yet, which he understands. Then I was involved in an accident and suffered a non-life-threatening but serious injury, and one arm will be immobilized for a few weeks at least. I'll be honest, it would make life a lot easier to move in with my boyfriend until I have two usable arms again, but I'm worried it will just make his anxiety worse, and I know he'll try to get me to stay even after I've healed. I live alone, so I don't have roommates to ask for help with daily tasks. Do I move or don't I? Don't move. Yeah, well, I mean, I, Yet. I feel like ideally you should be able to have a very clear conversation with him about, like, hey, you know, it would be great for me to move in just for this period of time while I'm healing, but I want you to understand that, like, you know, you you need to kind of respect the fact that that doesn't mean that I'm, like, ready to move in with you so that it's, like, clear ahead of time that that it's just this, that it's just 
for this reason and for this period of time. But I don't know if that's realistic or. Yeah, I I I think there's definitely room here for good things to happen. Like, I don't think I understand his anxiety. I think the boyfriend maybe needs some more help dealing with it than he's got now. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like he's doing anything bad or manipulative or wrong. Right. So it's more just a question of how are we going to eventually do this well rather than like you should really be on the lookout. I mostly just think um, you don't say like I'm totally incapable of caring for myself, just that it would be easier. And given the potential downsides, which are. In some ways, it would give in to some of the worst tendencies of his anxious mindset, mm. and we'd have to have, like, a difficult time unmoving in together at the end. Yeah. I, I think it would just be more trouble than it's worth. Uh, yes. When you put it that way, that definitely seems like – that definitely seems wise. I mean, I think the important thing that you're kind of pointing out is that perhaps he still has um, some work to do, understandably difficult work to do, before he's able to – have a relationship with this partner uh, that isn't kind of overshadowed to some degree by his fears and anxieties about that that he carries because of the lo- the loss that he experienced before. Right. And I think that's a really good point because the, the goal is not like come to perfect terms with the fact that you lost your fiance. No, of course. But to just say... Um, especially because that that sentence in the beginning is like, as we've gotten closer, he's become more anxious and he's been asking me to move in, kind of makes it sound like the moving in together conversation has been really connected with, mm-hmm. I worry about you a lot. Maybe I would worry less if we live together. Um, and I think that that would actually not relieve his anxiety. I think that that would only foster more of a need to control and manage the world around him, which again, he's not doing anything like lousy, like saying, stay at home, don't leave the house, don't talk to people. Um, but the 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 thing that he needs to deal with is this compulsive fear of anything could happen to you, right? Right, which is just true. It, yes, and and that's just a fear. To, I mean, obviously, to one degree or another, it's a fear that we all have to live with when it comes to the people we we love and care about. But but he's seen it happen but, exactly, and as a result, you know, he may be operating from a place of that would lead him to be over overly protective. Yeah, in a way that is not beneficial for for his partner or for the relationship. Yeah. So in the short term, certainly like ask him to come over and help you with things. If you can think of what are some daily tasks I'm going to need help with regularly that I could maybe ask him to set aside some time to do at the beginning of the week or who are other people I can call in and say, hey, I'm going to just need help making coffee for the next couple of weeks, um, you know. Turn to multiple people for support there um, and certainly ask him to help. And if, like, you want to ask him to spend the night, do that by all means. But um, I think temporarily moving in with him while also saying I'm not ready to move in with you is just going to be too complicated for you both. Um, So I I think ask for some help, but don't move in with him. And then also just talk about, like, um, how are we as a couple going to continue to deal with this fear and compulsion of yours Um, and who are other people who can help you in addition to me? Because, of course, you can be there and help, but he also probably would benefit from maybe seeing a therapist. Yes, I agree. And I don't have anything to add on top of that. <laughs> yeah, he, he sounds like a, a guy who's been through something really awful and is doing his best, and I hope he can get more help. You sound like a good person who's mm-hmm. suffered a little bit, and I hope you're both able to get the help that you need. And wait to move in until you're really, really ready, not just because it would make the next couple of weeks easier. So important. Yeah, yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A quick note about this next letter. I, we were talking beforehand and I was doing a little bit of editing. I've, I've left some of this in. This is about a parent who uh, at the very least appears to be probably misgendering their child. I, yeah. I, I, I edited a little bit of it, but I left some of it in there. Um, yeah. So just understand that, that <laughs> as you listen to this. Yeah. If that's um, rough for you, you might want to skip ahead. Totally get that. Yeah. Um, all right. Subject, uh, child ruined our vacation. Dear Prudence, I'm a single mother and I brought my 14-year-old, Emily, on an expensive vacation to Las Vegas for summer vacation. Emily's a tomboy and has been in this phase where she dresses and acts like a boy since she was 12. While she was in our hotel, she was constantly miserable, crying and saying she was a boy while I wanted to have a good time with my daughter. I asked her if she wanted a penis, and she shut up and stopped crying, but she ruined our vacation, and I'm having a hard time forgiving her for it. I couldn't even enjoy Vegas without her tears or her ignoring me and only reluctantly doing what I want. Since we got back, she's continued the boy phase, and I just want her to stop ruining things for me. What do I do to make her understand she ruined our vacation? Well... I wow. Yeah, I, I honestly the first time I read through this, I'm still not sure where I landed on this. I felt like this might be um like a thought exercise because it's so over the top. Yeah, I, I right. I mean, but it, but I I mean if taking it at face value, yeah. it, you know, it let it, if we assume that it is perfectly like legit and real, like you, the mother, really need to radically alter your thinking about this whole situation. Um, like, uh, you know, first of all, you need to understand, um, that not all men have penises, not all women have vaginas and that, um, okay. To draw on my experience for a moment, like I knew I was assigned male at birth. I knew for a fact by the time that I was 12 before then that I was, you know, a girl. Uh, I, I, I clearly identified that way, but I didn't feel comfortable voicing that to anyone because it was just clear to me that my parents and other people in my circle just would have had no concept or a way of understanding that. And so I carried that around inside me, and it was very, very painful. And I feel like this parent has such an opportunity here to to their child, and I, and I would urge them not to pass it up if the, if if they're at all capable to communicate to their child like your child is going through clearly going through something very difficult i i would suspect that they feel already kind of misunderstood they're struggling with with feelings around gender and you have an opportunity here to communicate to that to your child that your love for them is unconditional to create a space where they are safe, where they feel safe coming to you and talking to you about what they're feeling, what they're struggling with. And you, you like responding to their, their struggles with statements like, do you want a penis is, is so kind of dismissive to me and sets the tone that, that um, if I were in this child's shoes, like, of course I would not feel safe talking to that parent about those feelings because they're already sort of establishing that they that they are not like receptive to what I'm going through. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the reason that I included this and did not want to just assume that this is somebody's thought experiment, because again, usually when people write in, they try to make themselves sound like the reasonable person. Mm-hmm. And anybody who writes a sentence like, my daughter was crying and I told her to shut up, is like, oh, you... <sighs> yeah. Either your version of a hero is really... <laughs> the, the bar is low, or you're trying to write in like a caricature of a transphobic parent. But I, I just kind of went with, you know, given like what I know of people's parents' response to their transition, sure. I actually think there are a lot of people out there who think I'm a great parent and then do this. Absolutely. I mean, I've definitely read pieces by, you know, particularly lately in the in the UK press by um, sort of um, by by parents who are associated with the the turf uh, movement over there, the trans exclusionary radical fem- feminist, you know, movement that's that's been seemingly gaining steam in the UK in you know recent months, and read stories very much like this, where the parent just uh, links you know biological sex and gender completely and dismisses all of their child's feelings of gender dysphoria, and and my every time I read one of those, my heart just goes out so much to the child that is in that situation of having a parent who is so who makes it so clear that they are do not care to understand what their child is going through. Yeah. And, you know, there's just like a lot here. Like I took my 14 year old on an expensive vacation to Las Vegas. What 14 year old? wants to take, yeah. like, an expensive trip to Las Vegas. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, what's a 14-year-old going to do? Play blackjack? Like, right, right, right. Rent out the club? Like, yeah. it, we're even just, like, starting with this thing of, like, I yeah. did this thing that clearly I wanted to do and that my child has no interest in, and then, like, my child's life ruined my vacation. Like, I'm real sorry you didn't have a great time playing, like, Baccarat or whatever, Um yeah, but I mean, like, think like this meant this this perspective of of they ruined my vacation. I mean, what about like how you know what about what your child is going through? Right, right. Like, like you know, my my child was crying and miserable while I wanted to have a good time. Yeah. Well, a, a, you know, a good time. You can have a good time while someone is experiencing sadness. Had you responded to your child saying these things by saying, tell me more about that. I love you. I'm really sorry you're in a lot of pain. How can I help? You two could have had a good time. It might not have been um, like uh, swinging off the like top of a casino, but it would have been a good time because you would have been there for your child. Exactly. And it would have been real. Like it would have been a real you know, it could have been a real time of connection and like honesty between the two of you if you had offered them that space to be to be safe and to be openly communicative with you. And instead, you definitely create an environment in which they were not safe doing that. And I mean, don't you want your time with your child to be to be true, to be, you know, to to be uh, real connection in which in which your child is being who they really are with you right yeah and so again like it's hard to imagine a real person writing i just want my child to stop ruining things for me how do i make them understand they ruined my vacation with their sadness like either you are one of the least self-aware people who has ever put pen to paper um or you are made up uh if you are made up you know congratulations (laughs) i guess um if you are not made up just take a look at that sentence, my friend. Like, that is, that is a rough sentence. Um, 
So, you know, even just that moment of like your 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 child is trying to talk to you about their feelings and about uh, their gender identity and you made like a cruel and dismissive remark about genitals. Do you respond like that to other people in your life? You know, when other people are crying or sad about something, do you say something lousy about their genitals? I bet you don't. I, I bet that's not your response to, say, your sister calling and crying and trying to talk to you about her marriage. You know, I, I, I bet this is unique to uh, gender identity stuff. Um, and I bet that it's something that you did to communicate to your child. Don't talk to me about this again. So um, you will not be able to convince your child that they ruined your vacation. You will be able to convince your child that you are not a safe person to talk to. And you will be able to make sure that if and when your child ever chooses to transition um, and or develop any kind of an adult life and gender identity, it will not include you. You can have that. I promise you. If you keep doing this, you can get yourself a child who doesn't talk to you. Um, you will not get a child who does not have profound feelings and thoughts about their gender identity. You'll you'll have a child who hides that from you, um, but you can't make those things go away by yeah. being a, a monstrous jerk about it. Yeah. Um, and you will not be able to get your child to um, understand that they ruined your vacation, but you will be able to communicate to your child, what I need from you is a performance of happiness and emotional compliance. And if I don't get it from you, I'll make you suffer. Those are your options. Yeah. And I urge you again, I urge you to take the opportunity to to form a, a real relationship with with your child, because I think you'll regret it if you don't. And, you you know, I think your your child could really use that. And you're hurting you're hurting your child. I just got to yeah. tell you, parental rejection, especially at oh this age God. and especially around something as formative as gender identity. Um, that can leave lasting scars. That can lead somebody to feel like they're worthless. That can lead somebody to feel like their life's not important. Um, the amount of harm you could inflict on your child in this is is immeasurable. And so you need to choose your words really carefully. You need to apologize to your child. Um, you need to say, I'm so sorry. I was focused on the wrong things. I wanted to have fun at the expense of talking to you about how you're doing. Um, I was totally out of line to ask you a question about your genitals and i'm really really sorry and i want to hear about how you're doing um, and really listen really listen to your child and be open to the possibility um, that your child might describe an experience you have not had and that that is okay you don't have to have had every person's experience to understand when they're trying to tell you this is really big for me this is really serious um and, you know, uh, you refer to this dismissively as a boy phase. And you also say that this has been like a pretty big thing for your child for at least the last two years. Um, yeah, you have to accept, you know, you have to start by accepting the idea. You have you have told yourself that this is just a phase. You have to accept the possibility that this may, in fact, not be a phase. This may be your child trying to tell you who they really are. Right. And, you know, just again, like, you don't have any control over whether or not it's a phase. Yes. Um, whether it is a phase, whether this lasts for the rest of your child's life, whether this results in some sort of transition or whether it doesn't, is less important than um, how you respond to the emotional reality of what's going on right now. Not, you know, nobody, nobody's trying to talk about permanent things. Nobody's trying to talk about something that's going to last a lifetime. Your child is just trying to tell you right now how they feel. And your response so far has been to dismiss, ignore, and mock them. That's bad. That's bad parenting. You're being a bad parent. I encourage you to be a better parent. Um, and if you don't, um, 
you know, you're going to have to live with the knowledge that you have unnecessarily and possibly irreparably harmed a child um, because you would, what, rather like throw some dice in Vegas than listen to your kid talk about how they feel? Like those priorities are are bad. You have bad priorities. Like um, you're doing bad things. Stop doing bad things. Start doing other things. (laughs) That about sums it up. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Man, oh, man, oh, man. All right. So. All right. All right, let's move on to this next one. Um, All right, subject, uh, mental health bystander. Dear Prudence, I woke up today to a bizarre series of 30 text messages and 35 voicemails from a girl I once knew. We haven't spoken in over a year. We have never been super close. We knew each other when we both lived abroad and then would hang out when I moved back to the U.S. and was getting settled in a new city. The last time we talked, I knew she was seeing a psychiatrist for help with depression. We've drifted apart because she had she had a falling out with a mutual friend and because of my hectic travel schedule. Over the past year, she sent some odd emails, but since they were to a large group of contacts, I assumed I must not be in the loop. This recent spurt of text seemed manic and paranoid, asking me to fill out her reference form for the CIA, having a conversation with herself about an ADA lawsuit, accusing her roommate of taking rabbit poop out of her room, and quoting Bible verses, among other things. I'm shocked and scared, but don't know what to do to get her help. I don't know her family or close friends who are in a better position than me to provide support since I was a pretty superficial friend. Is there anything I should be doing other than generally expressing concern? I don't want to ignore this, but I don't feel like I'm in the position to provide the level of support she needs. Um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, I, I, my sort of initial hope would be um, that... You know, even if you don't know those close friends of hers who might be in a better position to support them, like if if you have a way of contacting them and just letting them know about your concerns and maybe they would be in a better in a position to actually check in on her, make sure that she's getting the the help that she needs, because it does sound like she is. um perhaps going through like a manic uh, phase uh, episode and would need um, like would really need help right about now. Yeah. I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, It it may even be worth getting in touch with the mutual friend who she's fallen out with. Yeah. Uh, Not because that person should be getting in touch on your behalf, but if they were close enough to have a falling out, then this person might know her better. Yeah. And hopefully, right. And hopefully concerns of this nature about her, her, her like actual well-being, you know, regardless of their falling out, hopefully this friend still cares about her and would want to help with a crisis like this. Yeah. And and that's not necessarily a crisis that would require, uh, I don't think it would require your your friend who had the falling out with her to get back in contact. Like, that's not what this is about. And and I think the the general things to bear in mind here, which are always important, is like, um, to whatever extent you can, try to determine from her friends whether or not she has a close relationship with her family because not everybody comes from a trustworthy or safe family. Um, so do, I think, do a little due diligence of figuring out who would be a helpful person to get in contact with who would not use this information against her or make things worse. Um, but, at you know, discreetly ask around. Ask ask the former friend. Ask any other mutual friends that you might have in common. Um, you can just start by simply saying, you know, I, I've received a message that makes me a little concerned. Do you know anybody that she's close with? You don't have to go into detail about what she said to you or, right. um, you know, 
uh, fan the flames of any people who might gossip. But to ask that, I think, would be good and to get in touch. Do, do you think it's worth trying to talk to her at all? Do you think she would be in a place where she could hear anything? I mean, my experience, my limited experience with um, friends who have had um, like manic episodes where they have behaved extremely erratically and um, is, you know, is that, I mean, of course, it, it may be worth trying, but but I do feel like it's it, it, there's a very good chance that that she's won't be able to be receptive or won't be able to hear that concern and that she may need um, she may need a different kind of help at this particular time. And um, and certainly like it's OK to. It's OK that you don't feel like you can, you know, like be, be the one to like solve this problem right you know that's not going to be what happens yeah yeah like i think just just um expressing concern and 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 trying you know trying to find uh somebody who may be able to um you know who may know whether this is something she has a history of and and know whether she has gotten help for this in the past or whether she can get help or uh whatever the case may be um i i feel like because you don't know you don't have that kind of close knowledge of her. You were never like close friends with her. Um, I feel like that's really kind of kind of the most a, you can do. The most you can do. Like right. it seems like just about the only option, you know, um here, short of just ignoring what she's going through, which, you know, clearly you don't want to do. And you should and I think you you sh- you know, you should um try to help her um to to the extent that you can. And yeah. 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 And I would say, too, the only um, other thing to bear in mind is that sometimes when people are dealing with um, somebody else who's going through a mental health crisis or having some sort of break with reality or having a manic episode, um, if they don't know how to be useful, they might lean really hard into, like, I'm just going to call the authorities. I'm going to have a psychiatric hold placed on somebody. And those things can be really traumatizing, really isolating, can sometimes make a situation worse. And again, you will not be able to perfectly predict that. But I do think to whatever degree you can proceed with caution when it comes to sharing more details with somebody than simply, I got a message from this person and it worried me, um, proceed with caution. Um, If it seems like somebody's only response will be like, well, you got to call 911 right now, um, you know, don't necessarily share details with that person because I, I think... You know, we live in a country where there's not a lot of great resources, um, and sometimes people will just think lock somebody up. Yeah. Um, uh, and and while this stuff is definitely worrying and distressing, and you would want her to get help, um, you know, I, I I know people who have been at least in, in California, it's called fifty one fifty. I know there are other places where there are different codes for having an involuntary hold placed on them um, over something um, that did not necessarily merit that kind of huge response. That can just be really bad. So. I, I guess mostly what I'm just trying to say is there's not a lot of perfect solutions here. Yeah. Um, and it may simply be that you will ask around, talk to somebody who knows her, and they'll say, like, yeah, we're encouraging her to get back in touch with her psychiatrist or we're aware of this and we're sorry that you were surprised. Um, and, and that's going to be maybe the best that anyone can do. Um, they may not – there may not be something better than that. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not a it's not a situation that has a you know good 
clear, yeah. you know, clear, uh, like one right sort of clear path forward. Yep. Yep. So, so um, yeah. And I think the one last thing is whether or not it, maybe even just for the sake of feeling like you have done all you can, it might be an idea to another day or two from now just text and say, hey, I saw these. I hope that you are taking good care of yourself and I'm I'm wishing you well. I, I know that that all sounds kind of like hotel room talk, you know, just like generic and like, I wish you the best. And I realize that that is kind of bland. Um, but but something that would walk the line between, you know, you don't want to engage with the severity and the intensity of what she said, but you also don't want to just say nothing. Um, and if her response to that is like 35 more messages, you know, then the answer might just be like, I really hope that you reach out to somebody in your life right now. I'm not available for this and 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 to not respond. But to say at least something that falls within the realm of neutral, open, kind, loving, non-judgmental would be a good thing to do. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This next one makes me hopeful because it kind of feels like all I have to do is give someone permission to do a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I, fe- I felt that way too. This is going to be, I think, a kind of easy yeah, easy one. But here we go. I'm going to read this one out loud. The subject is daughter's first heartbreak, which just, oh, this family is really sweet, it sounds like. I, I sometimes hear from families who are not great to people who are going through yeah. hard times. And it is always great to hear from a family where everyone just seems to be doing their damnedest to do the right thing. So... Dear Prudence, my 15-year-old daughter is going through her first breakup after a 10-month relationship. The decision was mutual, but she initiated the conversation. This young man is a complete gentleman, and our family welcomed him into our home with open arms. They're trying to communicate and stay friends. His home life is not the best. His parents have been in prison due to addiction. His legal guardian is a grandmother in her 90s. The rest of his family is verbally abusive and periodically kicks him out of the house they share. The dynamics were so bad that he actually failed his first year of high school. My daughter helped him pass by doing homework and studying exams with him. He's going to start living with his father's soon-to-be ex-wife, who loves him and wants to help. The plan before the breakup was for us to help him get to and from school. I know I cannot help all the children of the world, yet helping this one stay out of the system is something I want to do. My concern is how to continue to be there for my daughter without leaving him high and dry. My daughter has said that this is also what she wants, but I also feel that I made a promise to help him. The ending is worded a bit confusingly, but it does sound to me like the daughter is at least tentatively on board with the helping him out plan. Yeah, so I I feel like, of course, yeah, it seems to me move forward with with helping this young man, you know, and and just and just like make it, you know, I guess just maybe make a little even extra effort. You sound like you already are really there and concerned for your daughter. But, you know, maybe make that a little extra effort of of checking in with your daughter on the regular, like uh, um, making it clear that like this is not in any way um, like, y- you know, you like s- siding with him over over her or anything like that, which she probably may already uh, know very well. But I feel like 
I guess maybe that's some of where your concern comes from about like whether it's okay to move forward with helping this young man. And I guess I would just say, you know, prioritize your daughter, her feelings, tell, make it very clear to her that if she has any complicated feelings about it, she can talk to you about them and, you know, and that you're in no way uh, wanting to dismiss or disregard any feelings that she may have about this situation. Yes. And I think when it comes to uh, the practical aspect of this, which is like, is our offer to take him to him from school still going to be one that's workable? Um, I think the thing there to do is talk to your daughter separately. Without the pressure of, you know, he's going through a really rough time, um, especially because you can break up with somebody, know it's for the best, feel positively towards them, want them to be well, even want your family to continue helping them. And you don't necessarily want to commute to school together five days a week. Yeah. So I think what I would say there is, you know, if that just feels like a little too much too fast, um, I can, you know, uh, work with some of the other parents and we can figure out if there's a carpool he can join. You know, everybody else in your school has to figure out a way to and from school. Probably somebody else who lives near him goes to and from school. Um, and so I think to to frame that as um, that'd be really easy. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and do that unless you tell me otherwise. So she can kind of opt into carpooling. With there him. you go. Um, and then if she says, no, 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 I'd like to carpool with him. I think it'd be fine. We're going to be really good friends. This is, you know, already an easy transition. That's great. Um, and if she says, oh, you know what, that would be a huge help because that way I don't feel like I'm taking something away from him, but I still get a little space. Um, and then, you know, if that's the case, you know, tap into that PTA network, uh, ask around, talk to the neighbors, um, work with the soon to be ex-wife that he's going to be living with to see if she knows any of her neighbors um, and uh, figure out a way to make that work. Um, but I think that'll be the way to ask your daughter because I imagine she'll feel at least some pressure to like, well, he's having a really hard time, so I just need to be cool with it. Um, and maybe she genuinely is. If she is, that's fabulous. But if she's not, I think um, there will be ways to find somebody else who can give him a ride to school and you can help in other ways that aren't quite so like first thing in the morning, you're sitting in a car with your ex. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm yeah. thinking right now of my big high school relationship. Uh, and I'm just uh, like, oh, yeah, no <laughs> way would I have been able to like, I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I love you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's me. That's not this person. And you all sound like you're doing lovely, lovely things. And I'm so glad that this guy has you all in his life. All right. We have a voicemail, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and it's about money. And I am excited about that, too. I love, <laughs> I love it when people fight about money. I don't love it. It's sad. I just mean it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Have you ever been in a big fight about money? Well, yes. Yes, I've had family uh, debates about what should happen to certain amounts of money that I, that, you know, were, were sort of willed to me. Very modest, very, very mm -hmm. modest amount of money, but that was like willed to me, but that a relative felt like they sort of deserved for reasons. And rather than like, uh, like as I really could have used that money, I could have used it so much for, you know, it would have been a huge help in my life. But I, I just was so not able to engage with this relative about that, that I just, I just sort of acquiesced and did it just to be, just to be done with it. Man, how did um how how does that feel now? Like, do you think it was the right call? Do you kind of regret it? Do you wish you'd fought? I mean, I don't. I I think it, I am okay with the decision that I made. Like, I don't I, I don't feel like the drama that would have resulted from like having that um 
conflict would have been worth it as much as that money, you know, would would have been useful and and like had a positive impact on my life. I, I, I'm able to live a little bit more content having just dealt with it the way I did than if I'd approached it in a different way. All right. So with that in mind, we're going to listen to this voicemail. Hi, Prudy. My name is I'm calling because I have a question about my mother being written out of my father's will um, late in the game, right before he died. Uh, It's a confusing situation for me because my parents got divorced after nearly 40 years of marriage, and a couple months after that, my father passed away from um, alcohol-related issues. Um, He was pretty angry at my mom at the end of his life, and she was in his will for a significant amount of money, and apparently he rewrote that right before his death, and I am the executor uh, and personal representative for his estate, And for many, many months, I've been telling my mom that she was in the will and that she could expect to receive a large sum of money. The lawyer has been handling the affairs, and it just came to my knowledge that my mom is actually not in my father's will. And I had to tell her that, and she took it fairly well, but is disappointed. Uh, The question I'm having now is, should my other, my siblings, my two brothers and I, should we pull some money together and... Um, share some money with her, or should we honor my father's will and follow the follow it to the letter and just chalk this up to mismanagement and poor communication on my part? Um, it's it's a large sum of money. It's not life changing, but it's very significant. And my brothers and I could all use the money as well as my mother. Um, she's she's forgiven me for my faux pas, <laughs> but I still can't really get over this feeling of guilt I have for misleading her this whole time. Uh, any guidance you, or insight you have on this matter would be greatly appreciated. Woo! Well, this is kind of a best-case scenario, given how bad this started. Yeah. Like, just that the mom is, like, lovingly forgiven the caller already, that the siblings are all kind of willing to pitch in. Yeah. This could be so much worse, right? Absolutely. This could be... Right, right. It could be, like, it doesn't sound like... I mean, it doesn't sound like anyone's in a situation of real financial precarity here in the sense of of like like facing potential ruin. Right. No one's about to be put out on the street. Yeah. My initial reaction is, well, there isn't like one, you know, there isn't like a right and a wrong option here. I mean, and and it's difficult for me to answer this because I don't know, you know, I don't know the, the scope of the money we're talking about. I don't know like how... How much you, how much um, you and your um, siblings would be sacrificing in terms of your lives, you know, if you were to give some money to your mother. But I also feel like, you know, I also feel like it was a, it was a very kind of understandable mistake to make, and that if you know your mother's forgiving you, like. I don't feel like you need to do something here motivated out of pure guilt, you know, to give your mother money. But, you know, whether that might be an, a nice gesture, I, I, I don't know. Money can be so, so complicated and so much depends on, on like how much does how much does anyone really need the money, you know, or are we just talking about like 
kind of luxury money here to some degree. And, and I don't I don't know what we're talking about here. So it's it's somewhat difficult for me to really have have a clear kind of reaction to this. Luckily, I'm always willing to make wild assumptions All right. and leap Good. out. I mean, I, I feel like I've got enough info here to sure. at least have a sense. Okay. Which is, given that you thought your mom was getting the majority of the money, you were already expecting to not receive very much. So oh, if you yeah. want to give her some of the money that you weren't going to get originally, like had your dad died a couple months earlier, you would never have had the option of getting this money. Um you know, you have not lost anything. And in fact, you will have, uh, you know, strengthened, I think, your relationship with your mother who's already – I think the fact that she's already forgiven you for, frankly, what's a little more than a faux pas. Like you said something that you did not verify in a will. That's not good. You know, that was – Yeah, that's fair. That's, yeah. Of course. I mean, you clearly feel bad about it. I don't yeah. want to like jump on you more. But like yeah. that's that's pretty – rough for her to have gone through that. Yeah. Um, and you did not have to say that because you could have just said, I haven't checked the will yet or I have not confirmed this with the lawyers. I will go do that now and let you know for sure. Because if you were the uh, p- personal representative and executor, that was your job, you know. So uh, again, not to say, therefore, now you have to fall all over yourself and buy your mother's forgiveness. But, but you know, um, that was a big big bad choice. Um, You didn't have to do that. So, but since you were originally planning on not receiving that much money uh, and you you and your siblings are apparently all willing to do this, I I say absolutely go for it. Um, The only advice I would give you there is to say, you know, choose in advance what percentage of the money of your section you want to give. Invite your siblings to join you, but make it really clear that they are not under any obligation to, that this is something something you are choosing to do. Um, And if they pitch in, that's fantastic. If they pitch in a little bit less, I would encourage you to just not keep too specific a track of it. Um, If they decide not to, that is up to them. You can't make them. Um, And and, and do that. And you don't have to give her everything. Um, you know, if there's an amount that would be really, really helpful to you, you can keep some in reserve. Give her the lion's share of it. Um, you're not going to be able to fix the problem of your father writing a punitive will yourself. Um, but I think that would be a really kind gesture and it would mean a lot to your mother and it would make up for the, you know, error that you perpetuated. Um, and that would be good. Yeah, You're very smart. I think that's I think that's excellent advice. I mean, I'm willing to take the credit for something that a letter writer has not yet done. And I like to assume they do and it works out great. And I mean, mostly it's just sad because it's like the real sad thing here is that like the le- the caller's father drank himself to death and oh, left yeah. like an angry will behind trying to hurt people's feelings. Yeah, that's that's so, so painful. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I imagine if he died of drinking related causes, their divorce was probably at least in part um, caused by that. I Yeah. And if you're with somebody for 40 years and you're supporting them through active alcoholism, um, not that money makes up for it, but it probably would have helped. Absolutely. Um, but it's good that she's just already ready to like move on, um, that she has not been like depending upon this money and not making other choices in the meantime. And all that's really good. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Like you're you're honestly like for a situation that started out kind of bad, it ended really optimistic. And I think that you're doing the best you can to to make up for your error. So I don't want to be too, too hard on you. Um I can totally relate to thinking like this is a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I could double check. I don't need to. It's fine. And then later be like, oh, it is not fine. I really should have double checked. And I yeah. didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, man, this is, yeah, this is the greatest will question I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, so uh, I hope that this at least like retroactively made you feel like you made the right decision about your own will, not your will, but the will that you received. All right. Um, I think we're, we've got enough time. Well, I'm going to throw this in as a little bonus feature. We've got one last question. I all wasn't right. sure if we were going to include, but now I want to. All right. And you get to read it. Yay. All right. Take us home. Okay. Underappreciated. Dear Prudence, I've been feeling really unappreciated by my husband lately. I'm always expected to be the one who deals with things when the dog is sick, when someone has to stay home for the repair guy, etc. The final straw came when he asked me to take a personal day so that I could sign for a package, his new phone. I asked that in return he clean the kitchen. I got his phone. He told me he cleaned the kitchen. But when I got home, it was a slightly lesser mess. I've never felt less important to my husband than that moment. He keeps asking me what he can do to make it up to me, but I'm not sure chronic appreciation can be fixed. It sounds silly to say a separation was caused by a non-cleaned kitchen, but to me it was so much more than that and the straw that broke the camel's back for me. How can I move forward from this? Is a separation unreasonable to ask for? Uh, no, I don't think a separation is unreasonable to ask for because this sounds like a, like a, a pattern, a much larger issue in your relationship. And I feel like if a partner, if one partner is constantly making the other feel like um, they have to do the lion's share of the, 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 the labor, you know, in the relationship, emotional and sort of uh, physical, um, you know, like that is not that is not a minor issue. Like that to me is a is a very significant issue. All I can think of right now is uh, the season eight Simpsons episode. You only move twice. Do you know the one where you'll Homer, have to refresh my memory? Homer and the family move to a planned community so he can work for Hank Scorpio. Oh, um, yes. He was voiced by Albert Brooks and is fabulous. And at one point, it turns out he's like a James Bond-style supervillain. Um, and Homer says he wants to leave. He wants to go back to Springfield. And he can't, you know, Hank can't imagine why because they have this amazing house, this amazing lifestyle. They're about to take over the East Coast. Um, <laughs> and uh, and Homer says, it's just the little things. And Hank is just totally defeated by that. He's like, oh, I can't argue with the little things. The little things are what make up life. Yeah. And like Hank Scorpio... I see this letter and I think these are the little things that make up life. Um, And uh, yes, it is not as big and dramatic as saying like my husband cheated on me or my husband stole and sold my car. Um, But, you know, I mean, like uh, the so the thing the the, the comment about like I came home to a, you know, a, a slightly less messy kitchen. I mean, like often in in relationships, you know, when people just I feel like that those are conversations that ideally happen before or around when people first like move in together and live together is maybe two people come to a relationship with different ideas about what like cleanliness or orderliness means and different levels of comfort with that and hopefully you kind of communicate about that and find uh, a, a, a space in there that works for both of you. You know, if one of you has traditionally been like a real neat freak and the other has been kind of not so much, maybe, you know, you have to compromise and learn, you know, work together and learn to live a little bit with each other's kind of tendencies in that area. I don't know, but but I, I don't, yeah, I don't feel like that's the real issue here. Like the real, the real issue is not to me like the, the not, the not so clean kitchen. It's, it's the larger pattern um, that seems to be 
just his expectations around like like as, expecting you to take a personal day so off you of be, work. Yeah, for him to get a new phone. I mean, come on, like that is like. Yeah, that's, that's not personal cool. assistant level. Yeah, like. exactly. Like, there's definitely some something. There's definitely a serious imbalance in this relationship on multiple levels. I think in terms of just uh, um, what's expected in terms of the investment, um, the time, the labor, um, and also the appreciation for one another right and and even just like that his point is like what can i do to make up for this which is like what is one thing i can do to fix this problem yeah and what you are said like what you are thinking and what you i think should say to him is um that is not the answer there will not be one action that you can take that will make this okay the way that our marriage works makes me miserable it is a constant um disparity in terms of how much I think about your happiness, comfort, the cleanliness of the home that we share together, um, the way that your life runs smoothly, um, the amount of time I spend thinking about that and putting work and energy in towards that is real, real high. And in the other direction, it's real, real low. And I could, uh, you know, spend a ton of time laying it all out for you, explaining it, reminding you of all this, telling you exactly what I need. And maybe it would get a little bit better. Um, but mostly it just sounds like it's a di- I'm trading in one full-time job for another full-time job. And what I want is not to be in a marriage with someone who says, I moved around some of the mess on the kitchen floor. Why are you sad? Um, yeah. I believe you're smarter than that. I believe you're more observant than that. I think you turn these things off when you come home. I'm willing to guess, letter writer, that there's some gendered shit going on here. And when I say gendered shit, I mean sexist shit um, that he does not bring to, say, his colleagues at work. Um, But when it comes time to come home, it's like, I I suddenly have no imagination. I suddenly have no observational skills. I suddenly have no idea why uh, you feel upset about my total lack of regard for the home that we share. Um, And so, yeah, I I would just say to you, yes, this is worth feeling upset about. Yes, the fact that he wants to know what's the one thing I can do to make this go away is not a sufficient response. Um, And that if you try to have conversations with him and he simply does not take you seriously or says, like, I get that you're upset and I'm really sorry about that. But I think the the solution is just for you to care less um, Then, then that is a good enough reason for you to say you are not the husband that I want to share my life with. Um, I think, again, now to reference another TV show, I think of Liz Lemon on 30 Rock when she's delivering that monologue to that guy about what she wants. And she's like, I want someone who unloads the dishwasher, not just unloads forks as needed like I do. (laughs) Right. Um, right, And yeah, just that sense of like, there are just... It, it it crushes the soul, you know, to live with someone who just yeah. is attentive and intelligent and thoughtful in other aspects of their life. And then when they come home, it's just like, I, I don't know what a towel is. Uh, I, I forgot what a dishwasher is. Um, I never anticipate the needs of the household. I never, of my own initiative, get extra paper towels because I know everyone uses paper towels and we're going to need new ones in a week. Um, and those people are often straight men. And it's often just like slow spiritual deaths of yeah. just like, gee whiz, I'm fine living like we're in a frat house. Why don't you just care less? Yeah, I mean, appreciation is like... Appreciation, affection, you know, uh, th- these are not like, in my mind anyway, uh, in, in the long term, these are not like wants. These are these are needs. Like these are part of what makes a relationship 
work in the long term. And if they're completely absent, like, that's not okay. I just got a text from Phil uh, and he just said, love is a behavior. And that's so true. Love is an action. Exactly. And again, that's not just like in any long term relationship, regardless of the gender of the participants, everybody has times when they get thoughtless or careless or like look for what's the least amount I can get away with. We all do that. Right. But when it's all the time, when it's consistent and when there's a refusal to imagine what the toll is on your partner when you don't do any of those things. That's yeah. unloving. Right, exactly. Like some relationships, you know, or or I think, you know, a lot of relationships that last a long time, it's like, you know, there might be periods where one person has to do a little more of the work because their partner is swamped or struggling or whatever. And then and then other periods where the other partner, you know, maybe has to invest a little more for whatever reason. But it's not like a it's not like a permanent um, just reality of the relationship that one person's needs, et cetera, are 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 take so much priority and the other persons are basically kind of ignored. Yes. Yeah. And I, neither of us is saying if you come home and three times in a row the bathroom is messy, you know, divorce your spouse. Right. Um, but, you know, if, if this is the level of frustration you've reached and if your husband is still at the stage of what's the one thing I can do to make this stop and you're like, I don't want to live with you anymore. That is something that you need to be honest about. Um, it's a pattern of disrespect and disregard and just, frankly, a level of incuriosity about your interior life that would just be devastating, I think. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to accept that. And you don't have to, like, say, OK, I'm going to spend the next year giving you an intensive on, like, emotional imagination, like – you know, I want you to anticipate that we might have laundry. I want you to take off time of work when our dog is sick because it's our dog, not my dog. Like, I think the problem is that your husband maybe thinks of you fondly, but mostly as a person who makes the home run smoothly and that that's your job. That's not your job. Uh, yeah. Kind of you know? sounds that way. Yeah. The, the the wife is the person who makes the house go. Yeah. This is not, you know, I mean, it wasn't okay then either, but we're not living in the Mad Men era anymore, you know? Right. And like, <laughs> at least then you had, I don't know, you were allowed to smoke cigarettes indoors. So you had like an escape valve. God, I miss smoking. <laughs> um, yeah. No. Um, this, I get why you are this level of frustrated telling somebody else to take a personal day so that they can sign for your new phone. And then, like half acidly agreeing to clean the kitchen and being like, I moved some cups. You know? Yeah. Do, like I in that situation, I'd be like, please cheat on me so that I can have like a, a dramatic moment. This is just sad and small and petty. And I wish you were better at being worse. Um and and so yes, absolutely. That does not mean like file for divorce tomorrow, but be like, I take this really seriously. You have not shown any interest in changing here, um, and this matters a lot to me. So we we're 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 at a crossroads, and and if there's not a lot of change on his part, then at least you don't have to stay married to him for another thirty years. Yeah, <sighs> Carolyn. Daniel. Thank you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the air and sharing um, your financial arguments with your family. Um, And I hope that you just have a fabulous, fabulous rest of the day. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. 
don't miss an episode of the show, head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Thank you.